0: This Expert Insights evening was recorded in front of a live audience on the 27th of June, 2018. The topic this month is Asylum Seeker and Refugee Mental Health, Meeting Vulnerability with Protections. On the panel we have Professor Zachary Steele, PhD Master of Clinical Psychology and St. John of God, Professorial Chair of Trauma and Mental Health. Dr. Belinda Liddell, Postdoctoral Fellow, UNSW School of Psychology. Mr. Jorge Arroche, Chief Executive Officer at New South Wales Service for the Treatment and Rehabilitation of Torture and Trauma Survivors, and Reza, our lived experience representative. Chairing this evening is Dr. Vered Gordon.
1: Hello everyone good evening my name is Belinda Liddell and I'm a research fellow in the School of Psychology and the deputy director of the refugee trauma and recovery program in the School of Psychology at UNSW. Um, I've been working for several years now on projects trying to better understand the experience of the refugees including um, some of the uh, neurobiological mechanisms and psychological mechanisms that um, underpin refugee experiences.
2: This is Reza Rostami. Uh, My background is clinical psychology in my country, Persian and Iran country. But at the moment, uh, working with Professor Zak as an assistant research uh, mental health initiative uh, and TRUMA, TRUMA initiative, uh, the University of New South Wales. And uh, at the moment, I am doing uh, research about the Asylum Seeker and Refugee, Impact for Insecure (coughs) Residency and Mental Health, uh, and Asylum Seeker.
3: Um, My name is Jorge Roche. I'm a clinical psychologist as well. And uh, I'm the uh, Chief Executive of STARTS. that's a service for treatment of rehabilitation of torture and trauma survivors. I've been with STARTS very close from the beginning, and uh, STAS has been going for 30 years. We've seen over 60,000 um, um, uh, torture survivors during that time. Uh, we see roughly about 5,000 a year. Last year was a bit of a, uh, a giant year. We saw more than 9,000 in the context of the uh, additional intake from uh, Syria and Iraq. Uh, and away. I'm the chair of OST, that's an organization that provides services. In, in, we used to provide services in Manus and, and uh, continues in Nauru. And I'm also currently the president of the uh, IRCT, which is International Rehabilitation Council for Torture Survivors.
4: Thank you. Thanks, Jorge. So my name's uh, Zachary Steele. I'm um, Currently I hold the chair of Trauma Mental Health, which is a partnership between St. John of God Healthcare and uh, the University of New South Wales. I sort of came to the field a bit later than Jorge, about 25 years ago, um, and... Um, my role, sort of across that time, I started working with asylum seekers back in 1992, and at that time we began to see the emergence of harsh, a, policy, a global policy of what was described as humane deterrence, and we'll talk talk more about how that's played out over the last 25 to 30 years, um, and have been involved with um, other people in just trying to document the impact of this, mainly through. Um, epidemiological and community surveys, and then more in the last sort of 10 or so years have worked a little bit more in the Asia-Pacific region with populations affected by conflict and displacement. So that's uh, my background.
5: Thank you. And um, I'm Verrid Gordon. I'm a GP working in the northern beaches of Sydney, mainly working in the area of mental health and also work here at Black Dog, um, developing and facilitating um, um, educational programs for health professionals. So to start with, I might start with you, Zach, maybe just starting right at the beginning with some of the terminology. There's refugees, asylum seekers, there's other words that are used. Can you take us through some of the terminologies and what their meanings are?
4: Yeah, so we're, you know, globally at the moment we're probably, uh, well, we are historically at, the, at a point of the greatest level of human displacement that's ever been recorded in history, partly because the world population is so large. Um, we're moving onto some 60, 60 million individuals that are displaced. And the majority of people that are displaced are, 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 are what we would describe as internally displaced, so that they often remain within uh, their country, but they've been displaced by conflict and war. Um, when that escalates to a high enough level then, and people move outside of the border of their country is traditionally when we would have used the term refugee. <coughs> And that was a term that came in after World War II to describe the huge mass displacement. Um, And it was enough to be outside of your country because of this internal conflict or risk, perceived risk, to be defined as a refugee. But following the the, I suppose, the mass conflicts around Indochina in the 1970s and the mass displacement of Vietnamese and Cambodian refugees, which were then housed throughout refugee camps in Southeast Asia, um, a new term got introduced of the asylum seeker. An asylum seeker is an individual who has left their country, who believes that they're a refugee. That is, that they would face persecution if they were repatriated to their country. But their claims have not been independently verified. And um, we saw in about 1989, the requirement that people go through to have their refugee claims independently assessed. Prior to that, the person who really determined your refugee was yourself. Um, and that was part of trying to resolve the Indochinese conflict and the mass displacement. But since that time, the testing of refugee claims has become a, a standard expectation globally, and UNHCR carries out um, uh, tens to hundreds of thousands of these assessments on an annual basis, and countries that are signatories to the Refugee Convention are required under that convention to assess whether an individual who arrives at the border and might face the risk of persecution, and you know persecution uh, you know can mean death and certainly exposure to torture and horrendous human rights abuses to test test the veracity of their claims under the UN convention and when that process has been complete an individual is then identified as a refugee now that can happen in Australia or it can happen offshore the situation in Australia is very complicated because Australia actually has a very long and proud tradition of of offshore resettlement of refugees from, uh, from globally. We're one of a number of countries that have this sustained commitment across time. In fact, Australia, the Canada and the US have been sort of global leaders in offshore resettlement from refugee camps around the world. And that's something, you know, we do hear a lot of the negatives of, uh, you know, the negative aspects and I'm not gonna shy away from that. But we also have an enormously proud a tradition that we can be, I believe, extraordinarily proud of, of offshore resettlement and replacement. We have some of the best resettlement services globally, um, and um, Starts and other agencies have been at the forefront in developing those. Um, and so coming through our offshore program, we have people who are refugees, formally recognised as refugees. We also have humanitarian entrants that don't technically meet the refugee definition but are in a dire situation. And we have other groups. We have a woman risk program, often they're refugees as well, but that's a special category. Now onshore, people can arrive onshore and they're the asylum seekers. You can arrive by the maritime arrivals and of course many of us know about the slogan of stop the boats and the tragedy that has before than individuals held in Nauru, and Manus Island, and Christmas Island, and so forth. Um, And they're having their claims assessed. If they're found to be refugees, then they're um, able to get resettled, possibly in another country, but not Australia. And then there's onshore applicants that might come in through a plane on a student visa, and they can also apply for refugee status. They'll be asylum seekers (coughs) processed in the community. And there's a whole lot of constantly changing categories here. So if you arrived after a certain date and you're an asylum seeker, you're only entitled to temporary protection, which technically meets some of the refugee convention obligations, but not others. But it allows us not to commit, as a nation, um, the worst thing we can do to a refugee is refoulement. And refoulement is where you return a person to a country that where they face persecution, and that's a, that's a you know, fundamental breach of international law. Um, and to avoid that refoulement, we use temporary protection. So it's a complex, you know, and I'm not, not even touching the full complexity of it, but that gives a bit of a picture of the dynamics that we're working with, and people in different categories have very different um, entitlements and benefits and challenges and stresses.
5: Thanks for that. And I might jump to you now, Reza. Um, speaking earlier, you mentioned that people often wonder why would you make this journey to Australia. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what, in your, from your perspective, led you to make that journey?
2: My experience uh, for personal, the first personal experience and then the, within this research already did experience, uh, I find that too much. Uh, issue and many many reasons for came in Australia. Australia uh, one year ago, two years ago, in Europe, uh, more more than two million people were, uh, fled to Europe. And uh, 2013, 2012, 2011, near 13,000 people came in Australia, but. Uh, My personal mind is a political issue, sexual issue, and uh, for my country is so many sanction, the West country, and uh, religion, races, and uh, unidentify and displacement people, the Kurdish people. Uh, That's many, many reasons for came in Australia with boat or something like that. Uh, If thinking about the asylum seeker came with boat in Australia, it's very, so much complicated. Uh, If you're going through this issue, the first step uh, thinking, why came in Australia? Why choose Australia? Why choose another country, the Western country? But I have one question as an asylum seeker. Uh, from West country, or Europe country, or the United States. If uh, all issue President Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu at the moment say true about my country, or the another country, the Middle East, is true, but uh, there is a big reason for in country, in my country, or the Arabic country, Syrian, or Afghanistan, and Iran. But so many reasons for fleet country, and fleet to Europe country, and Australia. But the, the, between 2012 and 2013, the near 7,000, most of young people fled Iran and came in Australia with both and chose uh, both for journey Uh, was very, very dangerous issue and dangerous situation for them. But uh, they could not decided another another decision for fleeing Iran Uh, and uh, Afghanistan or Syria or something like that. The Julia Bishop. Prime, uh, foreign minister, three years ago, went to my country and walked in the street, and uh, already interviewed with ABC or other uh, media, and said, oh, there is no problem in Iran. But the old people flee in Iran just for income, the low income. It's very paradox between income and religion and racism as policy issue. And torture and persecution, uh, 2001 to 2011. I worked for ten years in Parliament, Iran, as a uh, officer administration. Experience too much about the policy issue. At the moment, I think so. This is harsh policy in Australia or the Western country. But the first step we have to resolve problem in the Middle East. For example, my country, or Afghanistan, or Syria, or something like that, then stop for fleeing asylum seeker.
5: And so going to you, Blended. Thinking of settlement, some of your research is around adaptation mm. to settlement. What are the challenges for asylum seekers and refugees in terms of settlement? Mm. Uh,
1: traditionally, uh, uh, a lot of the field or the traumatic stress field is focused on, um, the, just on trauma and the impact of trauma on mental health. But we know now from m- many decades of research, some of which Zach has done and Jorge, um, and it's been seen across different settings that a major contributor to uh, mental health concerns amongst refugees and asylum seekers is the settlement environment and the quality of the settlement environment. Um, so the, the level of post-migration stress uh, that refugees can encounter upon se- um, settlement um, can be either exacerbate um, the, the impact of past trauma on mental health, but also contribute in and of themselves to um, uh, feeling psychological distress, such as depression and um, even increasing PTSD symptoms. And some of those um, settlement stresses can be uh, around practical issues, such as finding employment um, or stable housing or having children enrolled in school, uh, communication issues, such as language barriers and so forth. Um, A major chunk though is around um, often uh, visa uncertainty. So those who are seeking asylum or uh, even on temporary visas, um, the fact that uh, they may not have a permanent uh, residency or um, a sense of uh, feeling having sort of a permanent state of home, a feeling of home has a major impact on on mental health. Um, And that, of course, can facilitate that feeling of not really belonging somewhere um, and uh, sort of interfering, I suppose, with the sense of um, the positive steps that people can take to feeling settled, such as engaging in language um, training or uh, engaging in the community and things like that. Another sort of set of factors that are really important are social around the social domain. So um, feelings of loneliness and isolation are very common amongst refugees, even those who have their nuclear families with them, um, and the importance of making connections with their communities. So um, often uh, that might start within their own cultural community, um, but also establishing connection outside of uh, that into the Australian community is really important um, but things such as um, other social difficulties such as experiencing discrimination um, one study that we're working on at the moment has shown that um, that there are very high levels of um, worry around how refugees and asylum seekers are uh, presented in the media for example and then that has a very um, strong impact on predicting <laughs> Um, symptoms of depression, symptoms of PTSD. Um, Another issue is separation from family. Um, And that uh, is a major issue and often, um, particularly those who have uh, arrived by boat um, under the current policies, have very limited uh, access to family reunification uh, uh, programs. Um, And even those who uh, may be here I settled via the offshore program. Family reunification is getting harder and harder, um, and that's a major issue because it it uh, it does interfere with how people can recover from their um, past traumas as well.
5: And so, Jorge, I might come to you. You mentioned it's 30 years since the establishment mm-hmm. of STARTS now. Can you tell us a little bit about the founding of Starts and, and the work that you do, and perhaps how it connects with the things we're hearing?
3: Yeah. Look, one of the uh, I suppose inspiring things is that when we look back, we realize that uh, 30 years ago, um, people used to think of refugees as people that you know had were being persecuted, shot at, you know, and they, there was an expectation that they could magically get better once they get to a safe place. Um, unfortunately, that is not the case. Uh, what we began to see some 30 years ago, and when I say we, I'm talking about people within communities that were being affected, that uh, I'm myself from Uruguay, I uh, spoke Spanish well. And uh, 30 years ago, I was a psychologist and I um, hadn't done my clinical master's yet, and I was working in child protection. And so, certainly several of the families I was working with had issues that, if once you began to unpack the problems, you realize that went back to some of the traumatic experiences they've undergone. I was also uh, the head of the um, Latin American Association for Social Assistance. They had about seven workers in different parts of Sydney. And they, too, were picking up that a lot of the problems related to some of the experiences. At the time, which that was in the mid-'80s, People working with uh, uh, refugees that were coming from Vietnam, from Laos, from Cambodia were picking up pretty much the same kind of thing. The government was very reluctant to basically set any precedent that um, you know refugees needed any additional services because services cost money, of course. And so there was a you know quite a big struggle that went over several years. Uh, in the course of that, for example, we began to develop a network of um, you know. Volunteer, psychology, psychiatrists that spoke Spanish to work with uh, some survivors. Other things, you know, began to happen elsewhere, and uh, on a voluntary and sometimes uh, uh, that sort of basis. Ultimately, the uh, health department here began to pick up that there was something amiss because they were getting a lot of refugees turning up in casualty, you know. Suspect they had attacks and so on. Mostly, you know, uh, turned out uh, to be panic attacks, and, and uh, they began to see there was a pattern. And so Sydney Southways finally uh, decided that to look into it and commissioned a report from a young research at the time that then um, ended up being the uh, Vice Chancellor for Western Sydney Uni, Janice Reid, uh, who with Timothy Strong uh, began to look at what was happening overseas. They got contacted a few centers that have been set up in Europe and in the States, centers that have been working underground in Latin America, where, of course, you know, it was very dangerous to work with torture and trauma survivors back then, and began to look uh, to talk to survivors here. And some of us have been doing some work. What came out of that was a report that suggested that an organization should be set up, that it needed to be set up in a way that could act independently of the health system, because it was foreseen. That many people that have been tortured by government uh, institutions would be reluctant you know, to walk into a hospital and, and, and seek help. And also because she, she could see that you, know, they, you needed to be able to adapt to the needs of uh, refugee communities, which came from very different places, very different worldviews, and therefore needed to have approaches that were very different. One of the uh, things of uh, that time, uh, I suppose. Was that? Uh, remember, uh, I did something on my master's, you know, on on the uh, re- um, rehabilitation for torture and trauma survivors. And a site search threw up, I think, seven or eight articles that were not related to the Holocaust. Of course, you do that now; you get thousands. Uh, but that tells you a little bit about, you know, what's going on in the field at the time. Even services overseas that began to, you know, had began in Denmark, in in uh, in England, in in, in Holland. Um, have begun mostly as an offshoot of efforts to rehabilitate people with severe burns, with severe physical <coughs> issues associated with torture. But what they began to pick up is that, you know, the mental health scars, you know, the, the, the problems associated with the impact of torture, and what's exciting about what Belinda's been doing is that we actually now see how it impacts on the brain, uh, actually was a lot harder to deal with and to, and to assist survivors to get over than the physical uh, impact of it. So Stas began as a very small service, $350,000 grant at the time. Um, And I think a few weeks after we opened, we have a waiting list of about 70 people. And it's um, continued to grow since. I suppose, and I'm going to finish now because it's a a very long history. But one thing that uh, was very peculiar about how Stas started is that, um, it was conceived, and, and it was, you know, one of those things that happens when we have a progressive minister, a progressive CEO of an area health service, and a very supportive uh, um, other people within, you know, the health service. And, and it was set up in a way that, could, that, that it was foreseen that it could work with a community, that it would need to work in, in, a, in a setting where clinical approaches could be mixed and matched with community approaches. Uh, we've gone a long way since then, and, and, and therefore it's really exciting you know, to see research like Belinda's that actually begin to show some of the underlying mechanisms for why it's so important to work at all ends you know, of, the, of that very complex equation. As Visa was saying, it's uh, the challenges uh, affecting refugees resettling in a country like Australia are multiple, and it's not just the original trauma. It is the impact of the trauma and the capacity of people to handle the you know the very steep learning curve that's involved in resettlement, to handle the impact on the family, and the subsequent impact on you know the the uh, you know uh, the attachment mechanisms, uh, and also the interaction with an environment which sometimes can be uh, very conducive to healing and sometimes can be you know the opposite, and of course something which continues to be outside our control, which is that. Refugees have loved ones and have situations that, you know, they're very uh, close to back in countries where the conflict continues, and often the news from that conflict, you know, can turn upside down. You know, your best efforts in terms of assisting them, you know, to have a life of torture.
5: Thank you for that, and um, Zach, just following from that. What do we know about the mental health of asylum seekers and refugees and and what explains that in your view?
4: Yeah, so um, there's been now probably close to about 200 psychiatric epidemiological surveys of um, conflict-affected populations and refugees. So we know a lot. We were already getting a series of case series studies from the time when Jorge was talking about the Danish Medical Group published a whole series of um, uh, outcomes from working with torture survivors finding extraordinarily high rates of transition to mental health difficulties. Um, A a big review that we undertook of the whole literature found that torture is probably one of the, the strongest global risk factors for mental health impairment of all trauma categories and accounted for a great deal of the prevalence of mental disorder in this group. Torture remains a practice um, that is utilised around the world at extraordinary high rates. If we look at the asylum seeker cohort coming to Australia and to most populations from, from the conflict affected countries, because there are asylum groups from lower levels of persecution, but if we just look at those, most of the surveys identify up to around about 30 percent of all these cohorts report having been victims of torture and and no, and that sort of translates to about a fifty percent mental health impairment in that subset. when we look globally at um, the overall rates of mental disorder they're much higher than in the general population, much higher rates of PTSD and depression. But the one thing that's established and is very robust in this group is there's a dose response to the trauma. So being a refugee isn't in and of itself a risk factor, it's the trauma that comes with it and there are extraordinarily high rates. If we just compare the the average conflict affected population, they're endorsing about eight exposure to eight major lifetime traumas, between six to eight, if we look at the Australian population, the average is one. So you've got an enormous increase in risk for mental health problems. That's what's emerged from the very beginning. And so the very first piece of evidence that came in was just the heightened exposure to trauma, and that's, you know, um, uh, psychogenic for risk to, to PTSD. But that's only part of the equation. And and as the researchers have then moved on to look at resettlement stress, exposure to harsh asylum processing, which is emblematic of the policies of humane deterrence, at about the same level of risk as trauma. So asylum seekers, which are unable to return home to family, restricted access to social security and support, um, uh, inability to, to have family reunion and contact. All of those pressures collectively um, have the same kind of dose response pattern and very much determine the outcomes um, for those individuals, why they're exposed to that. Um, so, you know, the current models are that we have this, these sort of two major stresses that, that place risk upon individuals. The good news is, is that when there isn't that post-migration stress, uh, when individuals do have resettlement experiences, we do see longitudinal recovery trajectories. We do see individuals um, uh, being able to recover from their trauma, and, um, you know, um, and perhaps even more excitingly, we see their children being enormously resilient and having better mental health than the Australian comparative population. So, you know, we know these enormous stories of success that come from the refugee experience, and it's there, you know, perhaps one of the most successful recent communities have been the Vietnamese community, which has extraordinarily low rates of mental disorder as a, as a group, but um, they th- weren't exposed to those humane deterrence policies in Australia. Certainly they were, overseas. So yes that's the challenge that we have and yet globally um, government policies are about trying to restrict the movement of individuals fleeing persecution um, and trying to stop that and yet that translates into um, poor mental health outcomes.
5: And so Reza I might check with you in, in your journey as an asylum seeker how has your mental health been supported? Has it been supported? Um, what sort of um, interest have you received in that respect? Yeah. <clears throat>
2: uh, I would like to say thank you, the uh, Australian people, because we experienced too much support from Australian people, but against the government, the, the first. <laughs> the second issue, uh, my experience, mm, actually I passed, I spent one year in detention center and one and a half year lived in community detention. But at the moment, government asked me have to came back in Iran, unfortunately or fortunately. But when came in Australia, I got it. Uh, too much. Uh, so many services for mental health and uh, uh, feeling well for my family or myself in detention center and community detention, and got it. Uh, so many. Uh, uh, services from STARS and Foundation House in Melbourne, something like that. Because at the moment, asylum seekers need to finish living in limbo. The big support from government, I haven't idea this policy or uh, any issue. Uh, they They want to finish living in limbo because living in limbo equal more addiction, more separate family, more gambling, uh, and uh, more struggle between community, more challenge between uh, family in, with uh, community, and. Uh, the professor Zaki and Belinda and Jorge know the living in Limbo, what are is uh, affect in family and uh, special for family have a adolescence and teenager, but it's big story and too much problem at the moment family have about the teenager and adolescents. It's my experience when came in Australia. Uh, I had uh, the 18-month daughter and uh, 7 years old daughter. At the moment, the youngest is 8 and another is uh, 13 and a half years old uh, in the high school.
5: Riz is circulating a page with several points on it reflecting his experiences and that of some of the people he's interviewed in recent weeks. I'm going to read those 10 points out for you. You cannot visit family for 10 years. Your father may pass away, but you cannot see him. Your mother may pass away, but you cannot see her. All your property in your country is confiscated. You cannot go to study for 10 years. You have no permission for a job for seven years. Your son got 85% of the HSC, but he cannot go to university. You cannot visit your children. You have no chance to stay in Australia and must leave the country in 28 days. Your article is accepted by the university but you have not any chance or permission for
2: presentations. If you have this situation, how are you feeling? Mm -hmm. Suddenly, you go to your home and will get the paper about this question or together this question. This is reality issue for asylum seeker.
5: Belinda, Zach already alluded to your research around the impacts of torture. Can you tell us a little bit about what we know
1: um, or what you've discovered? Um, but maybe, maybe I could talk just um, not specifically about torture, but yep. building on what Reza has just demonstrated, um, we, we've looked at um, how the impact of trauma, so the, the dose response, that the amount of trauma that refugees have experienced, as well as the level of post-migration stress. So the, the amount of different stresses that people have experienced and how, whether or not that affects, affects how the brain reacts to something that's uh, threatening. Uh, and it, and it does. so um, and that's over and above PTSD symptoms. So a paper that we have that's under review at the moment has, has shown that the amount of post-migration stress that someone uh, eighty five refugees have experienced, um, predicts the uh, the engagement of a particular part of the brain, um, which is around face processing. So there, it suggests that there's hypersensitivity to processing threatening faces in the environment, um, contingent on the level of post-migration stress that people, um, refugees, are experiencing. And at the same time, um, the level of tra- past trauma um, is related to. Uh, a, a sort of disruption in the networks that underpin emotion regulation. So positive, uh, the processing and proper processing and engagement of the prefrontal cortex, for example, in processing um, threatening information. So those factors are really important in terms of affecting physiology as well as um, sort of effect, emotional uh, responses. And in terms of torture. Um, We've, over the last few years, been collecting uh, fMRI data from a number of um, uh, participants who um, volunteered their time um, to take part in our study. Um, and we've found that the experience of torture, as opposed to refugees who have not experienced torture, um, does change how the brain processes interpersonal cues. And those cues can be both threatening and rewarding. And so, um, So we found that those who have experienced torture show reduced um, activation in the reward circuits of the brain um, compared to those who haven't experienced torture when processing something that's like a happy face, for example. And that's dependent on the level of PTSD symptoms that person is experiencing, um, and particularly avoidance symptoms. We also found that um, the, the level of trauma that uh, a torture survivor has experienced um, ch- changes how uh, the hippocampus functions. So the hippocampus is a very important structure in terms of uh, our memories and context processing, um, but also in terms of regulating our um, emotional responses to, um, to uh, emotional cues in our environment and we found that there was a lower activation in terms of in the hippocampus um, amongst torture survivors to both threat-related and reward-related cues, um, which were predicted by different types of PTSD symptoms. And so, and these were participants who had experienced, some people had experienced torture more than 10 years ago um, and others more recently, but it suggests that there may be a long-term effect of uh, torture o- on how the brain responds to something that's emotional. Okay.
5: And, um, and Jorge, I might just get you to also touch on um, the model of care that um, STARTS employs. If you can kind of run us through how do you approach helping asylum seekers and refugees? Sure. It starts, yeah. Sure.
3: Um, look, it's wonderful to have this research coming out because it actually substantiates and supports something that we've intuited, you know very much at the beginning you know of of the process Or, or well maybe it took us a couple of years to come around that we needed to take into account that it wasn't just initial trauma as I said before it was the interaction of the impact of trauma with a whole lot of other things and often it became a very complex cocktail and a very complex thing to unpack for people particularly if you work just from a clinical uh... perspective Therefore, we began to see that we needed to integrate other things. We needed to integrate, you know, working with the environment around the people, working with the family. We needed to make absolutely sure also what we understood, you know, the cultural uh, aspects that you know modify both symptoms of these stress, but also how the understood people understood the situation. We needed to work with the strengths that people have. I mean, you know, people that get here. Uh, you know, in order to go through the uh, challenges in a country with persecution, when you're being persecuted specifically, you have to be quite resourceful. Uh, in order to become an asylum seeker, you have to be even more resourceful because you know, getting the carriage and the wherewithal to actually get on a boat, you know, put your life and sometimes your family on something that seems like a quite a slim chance requires. You know, a kind of person that's got a high locus of control and, and, uh, and so on. So it, it's, uh, um, it's important that you know, we understand those strengths and we work to, with those strengths. It's important also that we understand the strengths around them. And so we all live you know, good lives, not just because of our internal resources, but also external resources that we can connect to. So understanding those and making sure that we can maximize you know, the, the, the environment around people, is crucially important. Once you begin to take all this into into account, you realize you have to work with people individually. And as we began to learn more and more about how trauma affects people, you realize with some people you really have to learn, work very much at a biological level. There's no point in trying to um, uh, teach people, you know, techniques and and, and uh, uh, to manage situations if the brain is not working. Uh, well and therefore you know sometimes you know the the the, the first thing they have to do is to uh, 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 teach people you know to essentially learn how to regulate the brain again sometimes you know we use techniques that work directly with the brain with like you know feedback a lot of the time we work with you know how people construe things around them and so there's a whole lot of psychological techniques and as we began to also uh, learned, and, and, and again there's a lot of research that's now beginning to substantiate that, we realize that you know, people's uh, you know, attachment style has a lot to do with how they experience torture, but also with how they're able to recover from torture. Therefore, you know, there is a place also for techniques that work more at that level, and, and, and assist people to you know, begin to, to develop you know, a different way of, of, of seeing themselves and, and, and the world around them. Because, interestingly enough, we've been, from the beginning, very eclectic in terms of, you know, how we approach things. And, and we've had successes and failures, which just about every, you know, psychological uh, technique that, that we've tried. And more and more, what we've learned to do, to, to, what we learned is that it, it is a horses for courses. You need to, to, to learn how to fit the different approaches to the problems that people present with. But also, to how people understand the world around them. Because I mean, one thing that I always uh, I think is essential is that you know the, the 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 clinician needs to believe in what they're doing, but you know the client also needs to understand and, uh, and be part of, of that process. Um, I talked about the environment, and, so, and that environment is the you know it involves immediate environment of the family around people, you know the community around people, and so we began to realize that sometimes it was more effective to assist community leaders to understand what they could do to better support the community, to assist, you know, some of the uh, informal, you know, natural networks in a sense to become stronger, more resilient and better able to support individuals within them. There's also a very important interface with, you know, society at large. For example, we began to realize that to train other service providers and to work at a policy level and to try and make sure that what we learned in the forefront with clients also made its way into affecting policy was also crucial. So in a way that uh, gives you, a, 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 I suppose, a model that takes into account all the different things that make up the problem the, and the, the, the things that, you know, the, the, the positive things that are going for people. And it's always an equation. And you're trying to influence that equation one way or the other.
5: Our first question from the audience tonight the distinction between trauma and torture can be confusing. Could you perhaps clarify this distinction for us?
3: And torture is basically the infliction of trauma, of the, the people creating very traumatic events on purpose and very carefully sometimes uh, and, and, and uh, planned in order to basically destroy and affect people as much as possible. However, when... People are persecuted. There's a whole lot of different traumas that they suffer that may not reach the, uh, you know, that definition where you know that somebody is, is actually inflicting, you know, pain and and humiliation on on purpose and in a controlled environment, but can be just as destructive. Uh, and we began to see that many of the, uh, uh, you know, sometimes family members of people have been tortured, sometimes people that had come as refugees. But had not actually been tortured, may have been uh, hiding for a long time, may have been in a, in a persecuted, may have suffered other traumatic losses and other traumatic events in the context of refugee experience while fleeing, you know, while being in a refugee camp, which are extremely unsafe places a lot of the time. And those traumas, when they happen in a situation where there's no caring environment around them, when there's no justice that follows, you know, when they are no, don't happen in a context where that, that, that trauma is understood as a crime, can have similar impact.
1: Maybe just to add to that, in terms of some of the statistics um, around exposure to torture amongst conflict affected people, um, Zach published a, a large meta analysis a few years ago that found about one in five um, um, conflict affected in people around the world were torture survivors, and so yes, so around four out of five were trauma exposed. In the case
4: they identified as torture survivors? Mm. So often we assess it by people identifying themselves as having been victims of torture, but when you actually then investigate that self-identified label, um, it pretty much corresponds to international definitions of torture in that they have been often in a confined space and had physical harmful force delivered against their body in a repeated way, and most people have a fairly common understanding of that. If you look at the International Convention Against Torture, there's torture and there's cruel, inhumane and degrading treatment, which all fall below the definition of torture. So when we refer to torture, we we are talking about people who have experienced physical Pain and other kinds of events, often in a confined space, generally in an interrogation setting. Or psychological. You, yeah, you can, can have psychological. I mean,
3: psychological yeah. There's very sophisticated approaches. I mm. so sometimes use you torture techniques that are, mm. you know, <coughs> uh, emphasise a lot more the psychological aspect than the physical, but yeah. it's still good <laughs> fulfil the definition.
4: Mm. And that particular experience is associated with enormous psychological, long-term psychological mm. harm.
5: A further question from our audience. We've been talking primarily about adult refugees. Are there any differences in the experience of children refugees compared to adults?
4: Um, so uh, there's been a you know, wonderful piece of research that has been recently undertaken in Australia called Building a New Life in Australia, which is the largest representative cohort of um, people with permanent refugee protection. So it excludes asylum seekers, although some of them had been asylum seekers. Uh, and this sort of replicant, replicates something that has been established in other settings, that it is remarkable how parents protect children in situations of war and conflict and um, it, it's, uh, you know, whereas often the parents will have reasonably high rates of mental disorder, that's not always the case below. Um, and, that, and often the children are protected from exposure to trauma. But once the children themselves are experiencing <clears throat> directly trauma, then we see the same kind of translation, the same kind of risk factor profile. Um, and this is, of course, why detention environments are so harmful to children, because the capacity of parents to protect are undermined. I mean. Globally, the research around children that are directly exposed to trauma parallels very much the, um, the adults. So children that do have direct exposure have that same dose-response pattern. Uh, from the general trauma literature, we know that child-related trauma um, is more associated perhaps with long-term dissociative forms of... Dis- disorder and also that there's you know, just a general increase in risk to the whole spectrum of mental disorders. Um, you know, the science around trauma as a generalised risk factor to mental disorder uh, it, it, you know, is growing as one of the major global contributors um, across the spectrum and, and children aren't immune for that. But actually what I find most remarkable is how families protect children when you know those families are buffeted about in these incredible situations of uncertainty Um, and so there's a great story there of hope and resilience but there's ways in which the current global system uh, is undermining that and placing children at enormous risk you know essentially i think the current figure is there's a one in almost one in two people globally who are um, displaced to children
5: this question from the audience was addressed to Reza. After dealing with all the things that Reza shared with us, what has helped his resilience and what has helped him to cope and keep going?
2: If you're going through this paper, uh, you can find in the 11 issue the asylum seeker at the moment experience. Uh, the more than seven issues I experienced in one month ago. I my personal experience. But I haven't idea I how can I do. And uh, uh I cannot explain.
3: Uh look, just based on my experience a whole lot of things. It's it's um it really I mean certainly people's internal resources vary and, and uh and uh, um but also there's a whole lot of external things, you know, the people around them, you know, sometimes it's like, you know, what your neighbor is like. Uh, Some small things sometimes can make huge difference in terms of whether you feel welcome in a new place or not. And I was talking about before how, you know, you sometimes get into a vicious circle. And sometimes the thing that can undo the vicious circle can be, you know, small, they don't need to be gigantic. That's why, I mean, Certainly asylum seekers, you know, uh, clients and, and, and friends that I've talked to, you know, I've talked about how sometimes, you know, the, the somebody going and visit them and, you know, having a good interaction with them change the, or help to change their views about what Australian society thought about them and help them then make a difference, I suppose, take a different perspective of, you know, who was welcoming and who wasn't welcoming in, in Australia. That, that, but it's a whole lot of things. And, and, uh, and uh, I think it's uh, one, f- if there's anything, anything that we've learned is that is it's is, is really important to take each situation for what they are. We're all different people and that applies to refugees as well. And therefore the strength, the resilience comes from different uh, areas. And it's really important to take the time to understand that, that, uh, so that we, you know, can help them in the in the best way. Because at the end of the day, it's them, you know, who uh, really carry out, you know, and uh, the major actors in that healing. We're just helping them along, and we need to be quite strategic in terms of, you know, how can we best assist so that they can get in contact with their own strengths and and take charge of that healing process again.
1: Something mm-hmm. I think there are sort of some qualities of the external environment that are really important and we've touched on many of those today. The sense of a safe environment, one that's stable, that has a, a sense of certainty about the future and also access to opportunities to to grow and build a new life uh, up after settlement, uh, essential qualities of the external environment for resilience. But I also think there are many um, uh, personal characteristics of people who have experience of seeking asylum and and a refugee background um, that we don't fully understand in terms of research as well. Um, I mean, it's an area that's really booming in terms of mental health generally, but certainly it's an area in terms of that we need to focus um, research to understand what are those factors that or mechanisms those psychological mechanisms, um, maybe there might be biological mechanisms that might assist people to recover maybe faster or um, cope with really difficult and challenging situations better. And if we can understand some of those, we might be able to funnel um, some of that understanding to help others who might be struggling. And,
3: and certainly would mm-hmm. you said, the locus of control, I think, is essential. Yes. And this is why, for example, when we compare uh, you know, permanent resident, you know, that is the people that Canada, refugee and humanitarian program with asylum seekers, uh, we see a difference. And I think that difference is largely determined because uh, of, you know, the, 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 the environment is, is a lot more conducive to healing for people who don't have to worry about whether they're gonna go back, who don't have to worry about whether, you know, they're going to be able to, uh, you know, bring their family over, well, they still have to but, you know, for asylum seekers, they just don't have access to uh, Zach talked about, uh, you know, permanent versus temporary protection. And I think that's one of the great tragedies that most people are not aware of. Uh, temporary protection really condemns people who have shown to need protection to basically, you know, a, a, a lifelong experience of uh, limbo and uncertainty and is absolutely stupid from every point, policy point that you look at it, because if you look at it from a strictly, you know, economic, harsh, rationalist point of view, it makes no sense to have people living in a society, and many people, you know, in some situations, you look at them, they'll never be able to go back, so they'll have to keep getting permanent protection, and not being able to uh, get to the point where I can actually contribute to a society, you know, in terms of social inclusion, in terms of economic contribution. In just about every sense, it is it, an absolutely uh, senseless and, and and really quite stupid policy with horrendous, um, uh, you know, human and and societal results. I suppose
4: this has been one of the big challenges. You know, it's been very hard to get rational policy, evidence-based policy in this domain because of the huge political overtones. And so there's been a lot of setbacks. You know, we did have a period where there was a great mobilisation of children being released from detention based on a big evidence base that happened. Um, And there was a number of politicians that crossed the floor under the Howard government to bring that about and we got enormous change and at that point government accepted a lot of the evidence that these practices were harmful. But then when the political imperative came in, all of that evidence got swept aside and and, um, there's not even an attempt to deny that these practices are harmful, they're just considered necessary um, and uh, acceptable collateral harm. But in other domains, there has been much better progress around getting some rational policy. Um, And one domain we haven't talked about today, but is important to talk about, is the refugee determination process. Now, it's still an enormously fraught area, and in some ways, the, the protections have been eroded because the government's reduced a lot of the protections that have been in place. But one of the aspects from a mental health perspective that had been enormously alarming, is that often the... To to test a refugee claim, you have to... There's very little evidence. So if you're a decision maker, has to decide if this person is a refugee or not, you often have very little more than their testimony. And so decision makers uh, then use all kinds of ways to determine whether they think somebody's telling the truth or whether they're manufacturing evidence. And it turned out that many of the assumptions that they brought were not supported by the evidence about the way memory works. And so, people who were mentally health, had mental health impairments and that were torture survivors were less likely to be found to be refugees than people who didn't, because their presentation was misunderstood by decision makers as showing poor credibility. So if you are talking about a torture experience and you're a torture survivor, you may disassociate and then just begin talking, and that was misunderstood. Now, this has started, you know, almost a 20 or 30-year campaign to document the evidence and to get that into decision-makers. Um, you know, some very recent wonderful study has been carried out by Belinda and her team on 50 recent decisions that have showed that decision makers are still using invalid assumptions about how do you determine if somebody's telling the truth or not, but they're reducing. And, and you know, just recently the UNHCR released their first global guidance note, which is going to change the practice globally about psychologically vulnerable applicants, and they've brought mental health professionals to start to train all those decision makers to stop them using it and I've been involved in some of that training and the decision makers are enormously grateful because, you know, they also, you know, as humans get upset, you know, if they're making bad decisions and, and failing to protect when they need to protect. So in some domains where there's perhaps more protections, there has been progress, but in other domains we've had some really huge setbacks.
5: The final question from our audience tonight do we know how parents protect their children in conflict settings? Is there anything we can apply from this in terms of prevention or early intervention?
4: I feel like I'm starting to move outside of my expert evidence based in answering that. Um, but I'll have a little bit of a go that, you know, perhaps we know the answer to that question by situations that impede it. You know, so we'd know, for example, detention settings which remove the parental capacity to, um, to parent and protect, leave children very vulnerable. Um, there's currently 1 million individuals in immigration detention globally in over 1,000 centres, with a large majority of them in low and middle income countries financed by foreign aid budgets. Though all of those, you know, those kinds of facilities undermine <coughs> this, and there's a lot of children being held in those settings. Um, we know that parental mental, Health impairment uh, is one major risk factor for children. Ironically, those still even uh, parents that have mental health problems in this setting, their children still appear enormously resilient. Although we do see a heightened risk, but so getting you know getting access, you know, getting psychosocial programs into settings. Um, you know, uh, one of my uh, some of my colleagues in this room I just had. An opportunity to recent, you know, visit a number of, of settings recently, and activities for kid, for children, you know, um, sports-based activities, just things that you know. If you're in an, if you're in a situation of um, long-term entrenched refugee setting, uh, you need things to do. The kids need things to do. They need activities. They need you know. And often that will be created, but you know some of those productive things are enormously helpful, um, and for adults as well. So, um, so I think that there are there are aspects there. There's a got you know there's the WHO are running a number of programs for parents and for children, randomised controlled trials across multiple settings, of of. Um, easily transferable psychological strategies that involve physical activity involve some kind of parenting support because if your kids are distressed they're more like the parents are more likely to use um, negative parenting strategies and if you can get some you know, good actions in there you can get more positive outcomes We're still yet to see that but I think that's a seven country study of, of you know um, of um, Displaced and vulnerable communities. So I think we're building the evidence base around that, and hopefully we'll have more and more strategies to guide us to improve outcomes if we can't
3: find immediate resettlement places. If I can throw a spanner on the works in there and yeah. give you another perspective. Okay, because thank I, you. No, I completely agree with what Saki's saying, and it applies to the bulk you know, of refugees. However, we need to be very careful as well of not creating, you know, the, 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 the picture of the noble savage, you know, and, uh, and uh, there are people who, and, and there are parents who because of the horrific circumstances they have to survive in, because of the enormous pressure associated with the refugee experience, might not be able to do that. And we see a substantial amount of children. We have programs that focus on adolescents, and, you know, sometimes those programs as, you know, are based around the sports, are based around things that adolescents are, are interested in, uh, like how you date in a new society as well, you know, those sort of things sometimes. But also because, you know, the, 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 one of the problems that of parents that manage to be very protective with their children is that when they face with a new society that they don't understand, they can be also be overprotective. And that can uh, bring, you know, the, 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 I suppose, a cultural, uh, shock and the cultural issues into the family and in a way complement or, or enhance all the tensions that we always, always are between generations, you know, parents and, and adolescents and so on. So that's that area and that's important you know, to intervene. We've got a, a very old program there that's been going for over 20 years called Families in Cultural Transition where we work with those issues. To equip families to better handle some of those additional pressures uh, of the the uh, um, you know resettlement process and and the superimposition of you know having survived trauma and and uh, resettling a new country. One thing that sometimes we don't take uh, enough into account is that trauma has an impact of the brain, and you know the, the studies that uh, you know Belinda was talking about are you know, actually documenting that. But people also develop normative responses to very highly stressful situations. And those normative responses are actually what keeps them alive. It's actually what enables them to protect the children in those very difficult circumstances. But when you translate those, you know, those approaches and those strategies to a new situation, a different society, where those dangers are not omnipresent those very strategies that were so useful and adaptive in a very difficult environment, become maladaptive here. And sometimes we need to work not with the impact of, you know, torture and and, and trauma that makes the brain not work as well, but rather things, you know, that are really derived from the the brain doing what it does best, which is protect you and, and enable you to survive in a difficult circumstance. The other aspect that is, is that when people go through those very difficult circumstances, sometimes there are parents that do not manage to basically uh, protect and, and, and relate with the children well enough, because they're too depressed, or they're too you know, hyper-aroused. And, 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 uh, and we need to also be able to understand that that is you know, an issue. And so working with attachment and working you know, with, and, and, uh, for example, we have an early childhood program. That way we work with, you know, small kiddies, you know, and the, and the parents. And we work on, you know, basically uh, helping the parents to, in a way, regain the capacity, you know, to develop, uh, you know, attachment uh, uh, with the kids.
2: I would like uh, to emphasize two points. Uh, the first point uh, for visa process. I have an idea. We came in Australia six years ago. Uh, based on ACT United Nations, after three months or four months, all government have to processing, visa processing, and respond to us, positive or negative, you can stay or flee or come back to your country. But uh, this is bad processing for us at the moment. Or started six years ago. We came in Australia for any reason. Yeah, or positive or negative, or true or wrong, same like that. After six years, government said to us at the moment more than twenty percent refuse case and have to come back to home country. But my experience is every month going to stars. Thank you source for support me and my family for counseling and get counseling for uh, sometimes traumatized effect to research or community or same like that but uh, i visit and met so many people came to stars for get counseling and if doing question them i refused after six years refused after seven years if you refuse what happens for that children, what happens for wife, for family? For example, how, how can doing this respond to my daughter? For example, my daughter came in Australia, had seven years old. But at the moment, they 14 years old. She cannot reading Farsi, and under, cannot uh, good understanding Farsi. For example, the next week, I came back in my country, yeah? What happens for my daughter? Why after six years or seven years government visa processing, started for visa processing? And then to, for 20% refused, And the more than 7% or 10% for Iranian, uh, 69% IAA refused. It's very interesting.
4: And just by way of background, some of you don't know the complex politics, at a certain point in time, can't remember the date, it might have been sometime around 2012, the government suspended all refugee applications of maritime arrivals, so refugee claims stopped to be processed, and they weren't, you know, that went for about four or five years, and then they only started to be processed recently, and, you know, the... The evidence from the decision makers themselves is that this is an, an enormously psychologically deteriorated cohort. You know, I think that's why the decision makers are finding our input so helpful because they've never come across a group that are so unable to engage in the decision-making process because that six years has been um, very um, uh, corrosive to mental health.
5: Unfortunately, we're out of time. How quickly does the time go? Please join me in thanking our amazing panel for such an informative evening.
0: Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.